Hello and welcome to Aspects of History. I'm Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor. If you're new to Aspects of History, we're a magazine and website dedicated to history and historical fiction. Head over to aspectsofhistory.com where you'll find articles, interviews, book reviews and short stories and they're all absolutely free. Our magazine is at the insanely cheap price of under a tenner for a year's subscription and that's under a tenner in American as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. If you enjoy it, please give it a great rating. It'll help us carry on running them. In last week's episode, I chatted to Andrew Roberts about George III. But what about his predecessor as monarch, George II? They were very different men, and I got the opportunity to chat with Norman Davis about the second George. George Augustus, as Norman calls him. Norman's book, George II, it came out in the summer, and in our discussion, he certainly had occasion to put me straight on a few British-centric misunderstandings. In his first part, we discussed George's upbringing and family, including the terrible Königsmark affair, his pan-European kingdoms, and Dettingen, where George was the last monarch to lead an army into battle. In part two, released next week, we go on to talk about George II's involvement with slavery in the slave trade and the Jacobite Rebellion of 1745, where Norman again is careful to ensure my language is correct. I hope you enjoy the episode. And please subscribe if you do. Norman Davis, welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. Uh, now, Norman, your book, George II, it's been out for a little bit. Um, but can you tell us all about the book uh, and the series that it's part of? This book is one of a series of about 35. Uh, it's very reactionary sort of idea, but uh, in detail, they... Um, the essays, I think, are excellent. And each of the little volumes has a removable portrait. Um, that's how it looks. Um, that's uh, very nice. It. And uh, the, the portrait is a, whatever, symbolic um, production by somebody in the graphic department. Well, they've done a good job. Uh, we we did feature one an earlier um, an earlier monarch on on this um, as part of this series from David Woodman, who wrote something on uh, Edward the Confessor. Right. Um, well, they go right back. Of course, it, I, again, I say reactionary. They only go back um, into the English monarchy. The British monarchy is actually of Scottish origin. Uh, the Stuarts were Scottish, right? And they yeah. had ancestors further back than the English. But, you know, the, this English amnesia about all... We're the only nation who doesn't know where they live, basically. I've always said that. They, um, I, I, yeah, I completely it's, understand It's that. terrible. But um, anyhow... Um, I think there are a number of, of good items in, in this series. Um, just showing you the, uh, the title, George II, not just the British monarch. Um, I don't actually use the title George II throughout the book because that's his English title. The, whole, uh, the most interesting thing about this book, I think, is the language, i.e. Um, he um, was a monarch, a sovereign monarch, both of Great Britain and Ireland, and 
uh, you know, the electorate of Braunschweig, Lunenburg, um, uh, and he had different titles in different places. So, uh, why, you know, why should we just use the English form? Um, so, I, I actually, I called him George Augustus. Uh, in Germany, he was, of course, Georg August. But uh, uh, there's, there's a, uh, an interesting uh, section right at the beginning called the linguistic transposition uh, of the book, explaining why I don't call him George II, why I don't use the name Har Hanoverians, which was invented by the English to cover up who he really was. Like he was a Guelph and the Guelphs were Catholics mainly. And of course the um, bigoted English Protestants weren't going to um, tell anybody who he really was. Um, Speaking of language, Norman, yeah. um, I think according to your book, you mentioned that um, he spoke French to his family German to his Hanoverian officials and um, and to his dog Latin. <laughs> well, uh, something like that. Yes, uh, he was a native French speaker. The the family spoke French. That's what the language he was brought up into. Like all the um, the German, Polish, Russian aristocracy of the eighteenth century, they spoke French. Of course, they spoke German as well, but he he, he was taught German like Queen uh, like Queen Victoria was taught English as a, as a second language, and his English was a bit better than his father's, but not 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 very very much so. Uh, Bluff Westphalian English was it? Well, it, yes, of course, we've no recordings of it because we only hear what people said. Yes, but. Um, Bluff Westphalian is not very complimentary. I uh, I, I don't think he was um, readily readily understandable. But a lot of the um, pejorative jokes, sort of bad jokes about him uh, and his language, um, are spurious. Um, I I pick out at one point. Uh, He's, all the quotation books have in a num number of quotations. One is that I hate uh, poets and painters, um, as though he couldn't say poets and painters. But Germans have no difficulty with P. Uh, Germans mangle some consonants, but not P. And it's just made up. And uh, but it's made up in order to try and show that he was a Philistine and not interested in culture. But uh, he founded three great universities, which weren't didn't happen to be in England, so the English don't think about them. Um, but Göttingen, the Georga Augusta, still has his name. Uh, Columbia in New York, which is quite excellent, and Princeton, right. And yet, and until very recently, nobody mentioned it at all. They just followed this stupid line that he was a, you know, a military dandy who was not, not interested in, in anything other than uh, 
playing cards and having mistresses. So, so really, is is this why you were attracted? Probably. Well, I guess my impression is that you're attracted to writing this book, on the one hand, to explode these myths, but also, but also to, to present him as a pan-European monarch. Is that is that why you wanted? Well, I wasn't attracted to him at all. I I was in hospital when Penguin um, asked. Um, its authors to choose a monarch. This was already was five years ago because I, I had a cancer operation and I was completely uh, out of it. And when I, as it were, when I woke up, they told me that the only monarch that nobody had chosen was George II. So I was going to write about George II. Uh, and I thought, well, okay. Um, and began to look at it. And that then I became interested because... Um, uh, I, I realised that he'd been very hard done by, uh, by historians, and that nobody really um, understood um, you know, what he was. You know, that he, he was a, uh, the ruler of, of a composite state. Uh, have, have you in aspects of history covered composite states? Not yet, but okay, uh, well, it, I guess it's now a, we're about to. A basic concept um, of, from early modern history that very few um, states in the 17th, 18th century were nation states based on a nation. They were based on dynasties. And the dynasties collected territories wherever they could. Uh, and they ruled them you know, as one composite state but each of them had their own laws and, uh, and customs, uh, and the, the sovereign sat on top of the whole of them. Uh, and this idea was invented by English historians. I used to know Königsberg, uh, Königsberger. He was at King's College in the 70s and 80s when, when I was around. And, um, and then John Eliot, uh, as... Um, publicized the idea with relative to Spain. And uh, there's, there's quite a number of um, continental countries that have been treated in this way. But of course, the English don't think, it's this English exceptionalism, right? We're not like anybody else. Uh, and uh, the English have this strange idea that it's a nation state. Well, it isn't a nation state even today. It's, uh, it's going to fall apart before, um, but we're going backwards in terms of identity now, I think, um, which makes this, this, I think, quite relevant to... Um, um, yeah, so, so that's interesting. So, um, I mean, to what extent do you think... I mean, obviously he wasn't... Um, uh, a, a native English speaker. What ex to what extent was he was he actually an Englishman? Because I think, um, and I, I we we've done a little bit of research, and I believe, and I may well get this wrong. So by all means, he was naturalised. Go on, yeah. Yes, but 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 I, I think you're. I think you you've been described as an intelligent Welshman who never speaks well of the English. <laughs> and I think that was your Polish handler who who uh, had had written that note. Uh, well, there's, some, there's something in that. Okay, the, the sort of English, the Anglo-centric 
version of British history is one of my bugbears. Yes. Um, and I wrote this book, The Isles. I don't know whether you uh, I'm, I'm, I'm very familiar. aware of that, which was very popular in in Wales and Scotland and Ireland, uh, but of course uh, in England, it, well, it was very mixed in England. I had I had a lot of support, but um, uh, a number of people, like you know, dear David Starkey, uh, thought it was bizarre. <laughs> and um, and so so for but, but, sorry to answer your question, he was naturalised um, actually before his father came to the throne. He was naturalized, I think, in 1706, uh, in order to be given the, uh, the title of, of Duke of Cambridge, which sounds familiar these days. So yes, he, he, uh, he was naturalized, but he, he never sort of resigned any of his positions or titles in Germany, he he was ruling. He was a prince elector of the the Holy Roman Empire, which was no small show, you know. So, um, just just to, you know, to rub it all in, <laughs> the the first. Can you see? Can you see that? I can. That's George the Second on his accession, with his coat of arms, crown of the Holy Roman Empire in the middle. You have the White Horse of Westphalia. Uh, you have the Lion of Lunenburg, and the, the the other two horses are, I think, Hanover. Um, but that's his coat of arms, which is quite different from the coat of arms, you know, later in British history. Or indeed, you know, Queen Anne had a different coat of arms. Uh, this coat of arms was shared by George I and George II, and then George III changed it. But that says it all. That's who he, that's who he was monarch of. Yes. You know, the, the leading Cambridge historian calls him a king of England. England. He's not a king of England. Like it isn't, wasn't even one of his titles. So there's a lot to be ironed out. It's, it certainly is. It's very interesting. Now you mentioned his father, obviously George the First. Yeah. Um, the first. I'm gonna. I'll use the Hanoverian title, um, um, just because it's 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 sort of correct. But what would be the correct description of the the dynasty if if Hanoverian is is probably? Well, uh, uh, it was complicated as things in the Holy Roman Empire t- tended to be. Uh, the, his um, uh, well, he had lots of German titles. He was Prince Elector of the Holy Roman Empire. He was the Duke, the Herzog of um, Braunschweig Luneburg Kallenberg, which, which is never called Hanover. You, you, you don't call all arist- royalty and aristocrats call themselves by the name of their, their territory, their time, you know, the Hanover is just the city where their residence was. But he was, you know, whatever, arch-treasurer of the Holy Roman Empire and, you know, Duke of um, Bremen and Verden. He, he's, uh, there's, there's a, quite a good map, I think, in there. It shows his, the, his ancestral land stretched from the 
uh, from the North Sea, you know, to the Hartz Mountains, from the Netherlands in the West to um, Saxony in the East. It was a big chunk of Germany. Yes. Uh, and it was very complicated. He had lots of um, different titles, um, pieces of uh, property acquired in different times. Um, so I call, call him King Elector, King hyphen Elector, in order to convey his dual authority. I call him George Augustus. I call the uh, the uh, dynasty the Hanoverian Guelphs, just because the the the, the German original is such a mouthful. You could, you know, you know there there were there were two Dukes of Brunswick Luneburg, one in Kallenberg, which was our lot, and the other in uh, Falfenbüttel, uh, which was another's. But like it's. This mouthful of German names is, is, if you're writing in English, it's just impossible. So for that purpose, I, I, um, I decided to call them the Hanoverian Guelphs, as distinguished from the Falfenbüttel Guelphs next door. All these things have to be a compromise. You know, there isn't a pure solution. Um, yeah, no easy box to put them in. Yeah, well, once you, once I settled on what to call him, then I wrote the book. When it came back from the copy editor, it, it had all... Um, no, it wasn't the copy editor, it was the... Um, I think it was the printer. Somebody had changed it all back again, you know. And <laughs> because the title was George the Second, they thought that it had to be George the Second all the way through. And, yeah, you see. So, so the first Hanoverian Guelph, George the First. Yes. Um, and and the thing about all the Georges is they never got on with their with their um, eldest son. That's right. Yeah. Now, can we trace this all back to the Königsmark affair? Was that where the 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 breakdown in the relationship um, between George the First and George the Second had its I, I think so. Um, they were a dysfunctional family. Even before that, um, George Augustus's mother, who was the wife of George I, uh, in British terms, was herself terribly maltreated by her father. It was something to do with a morganatic ma marriage. So she wasn't recognised for who she was until, oh, for several years. And then uh, after she w was given the uh, title of Princess of um, Keller, then she married um, her cousin, George Georg Ludwig um, of Braunschweig, Lüneburg. <laughs> Kallenberg, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but the the dysfunctional family is uh, runs through several generations, and the Königsmark affair is really horrible. You know, the um, the then Prince Elector, who becomes George the First, but b beforehand um, is a philanderer whose wife, whose um, 
half-abandoned wife has an affair with a, a Swedish nobleman, Königsmark, uh, and when it's found out, uh, he is foully murdered, uh, and she is incarcerated for life in a distant castle, and not allowed to um, communicate with her children. Uh, my monarch, George Augustus, George II, was never allowed to write to his mother. Never, never saw or heard from her from the age of 11, I think. Uh, and he had uh, very good grounds for grievance against his father, who, who was an absolute monster. A lot of monsters on the English throne, you know. Um. <laughs> yes, yes. The, 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 the sheer brutality um, I've been learning about... Um, from Henry, Henry the Third, who I guess is a pious king, but the brutality of, of uh, yeah, but they're, they're, I don't know how people um, have much sympathy for them, but um... yes. So, so what was the treatment that he received, or rather, the treatment that his mother received, that obviously led to the, the difficult relationship with his father? Was that behind him having a bad relationship with his son? Do you think? Oh, uh, certainly, but there's more to it than that. When um, George I is elevated to the British throne, or downgraded according to your point of view, <laughs> um, when he becomes King of Great Britain in 1714, his heir, George Augustus, comes to London as the Prince of Wales, right? But George Augustus's son, Frederick, is not allowed to join his parents. Uh, and he, he was only, he would have been six. So from infant, infancy to um, early manhood, he wasn't allowed to see his parents. He was kept in Hanover as a um, symbolic figure of the court of the electorate, uh, which functioned, of course, in the... Um, the absence of the monarch. And of course, the young lad was absolutely furious. When he came to London after his father's accession, that's in uh, 1727, the boy comes, I think, in 1728, the son, he refuses to be, be called the Prince of Wales. Like he just won't, uh, you know, he, he is um, Prince Frederick of, uh, of Brunswick. Um, and, of course, he, he falls out immediately with his parents. He um, behaves very badly in a number of ways. Um, George and Caroline are very upset about his behaviour and his demands for money and his cheating and all the rest of it. Um, so, you know, another um, dysfunctional uh, situation begins. The person who comes out of it best of all is Caroline, who uh, didn't have an easy time, but she was very intelligent. Um, but she certainly shared um, her husband's low uh, view of their son. I suppose, yeah, the sins of the father are met upon the son. Well, it, it is, but the the sort of um, traditions of the family were monstrous. Um, Anyhow, uh, in a way, that's the, the, something that everybody writes about. So I'm not, I, I don't think it's particularly um, 
it's not prominent in, in the biography. Um, <clears throat> when he becomes the monarch, he, he overcomes these difficulties. Uh, a lot of people wrote him off because of, of, of that sort of thing. Well, uh, he had so many successes during or, uh, during the, his reign, or rather there were a lot of successes during his reign. I mean, This is the time when the British Empire really took off. The key to the British Empire was naval power, and Britain, in his reign, went from being sort of number two or three to becoming on question number one. 1759, the year of victories, is the time when the... Royal Navy became Lord of the Seas, uh, Royal Britannia and all. Royal Britannia is, of course, George II, and really when, when the empire took off. But he's never been cre given credit for it. And never. Ne absolutely nobody's... Well, 1759 uh, is this sort of, as you say, you know, that, the Annus the And that is the result, <clears throat> not of a flash in the pan, but of steady um, investment and shipbuilding and, you know, organisation. He was king uh, of Great Britain for 33 years. It's quite, it's one of the longer reigns. And you know, generally speaking, it was pretty successful. Well, he was fortunate to have two fantastic statesmen, Robert Walpole and Pitt the Elder. Um, well, this is another thing you see. Can you see here? Yes, I can. I should point out for the benefit of our listeners that this page is showing paintings of George II statesmen. These a selection of his prime ministers. Only half of his prime ministers were British. The prime minister of the electorate of Hanover, in your terms, lived in Downing Street. Not Walpole. Well, not, not to begin with Walpole. Walpole took over Downing Street when it became vacant in 1734, I think he moved in in 1735, but for 16 years before that, it was occupied by the Prime Minister of the Electorate of Hanover, Count Botmer. Like, who, who knows that? I certainly didn't know that. But that was, well, it became, of course, the favoured political residence. It was, I think, less important at the beginning of the 18th century. But the symbolism is, is tremendous, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. The government of, okay, the government of the electorate of Braunschweig-Luneberg, do you know where it was located? Not in Hanover? St. James's Palace. Simply to gain access to the, uh, to the elector. Well, the, the, the court and the government went everywhere where the sovereign went. You see, that uh, if you read whatever Lucy Worsley about the courtiers, which is, is, uh, is a lot of good stuff in it, but the assumption is this is the British court. Well, it wasn't the British court. It was the royal and electoral court. So the statesman who, um, who ran the, the electorate, how effective were they? I mean, were they, were they just, they had just as many um, uh, brilliant statesmen as... as, as Walpole. Well, you know, statesmen come in different, um, indeed, different categories. Uh, <clears throat> Walpole was obviously a um, uh, a very prominent figure, uh, but he was not on the own. He had to compete with his opposite number from Hanover in, in, in order to talk to the sovereign. 
And was it 50-50 or...? Well, we don't know, but uh, since the Hanoverian, let's call them the Hanoverian bureaucracy was actually in the same building as the monarch, I think Walpole would have had difficulty um, pushing his way in. Um, so uh, another, um, another significant thing about um, George Augustus was that he's famously the uh, last monarch to lead an army into battle. Was he any good as a, a, a commander? Uh, not bad, but by the time of Dettingen, which you refer to, 1743, he was 60 years old. You're not 60, but when I, when I was 60, I don't think I could have uh, ridden a horse into battle. Um, uh, what he, di he did was to um, ride up and down in front of the troops before the battle, but the uh, practical command of the troops was in the hand of uh, you know, professional soldiers. Oh, but that's what he was. He was a professional soldier. But do you know what army he was in, 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 in command of? The Hanoverian troops? Among others. He was in charge of the British army, but the British army was only one contingent in a much bigger army, the Pragmatic Army. The Hanoverian army was as big as the British army, uh, but there were Dutch, there were Swedes, there were Prussians. Uh, the imperialists, uh, the Holy Roman Empire, the emperor's forces and so on, all fighting the French. But George Augustus was not just on parade at the head of his British troops. That's the impression is given that, that, that he was leading the Grenadier Guards. Well, the Grenadier Guards were there, but they were just one unit among dozens of others. So that's it for part one. We'll have part two for you next week. I hope you enjoyed the episode and please subscribe if you did. Thank you and good night.